It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk TV. We're on TV, we're on radio, online and on your smart speaker. Coming up, why on earth is the policing minister telling people to arrest shoplifters themselves? Prime Minister Rishi Sunak will address Tory conference for the first time as Prime Minister. Could it be his last? And apparently the Beckhams have a new Netflix documentary. Why should we care? Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. This is the place where you can get all the information you need for the rest of the day. We've got a hell of a show coming up for you because not only uh, have we got a selection of wonderful guests, starting off with George Pascoe Watson, uh, who joins me in this hour, but also uh, the Prime Minister's going to be joining us because he's making a speech later on, and of course it's live on this show, so you won't want to miss a thing. Uh, if you want to know what's going on in this country, this is where you need to be. Um, yesterday, you might remember, if you were watching, I told a story about a shoplifting scenario that I happened to witness in my local shopping centre where a guy had come in and had literally tried to run out of a supermarket with a load of stuff uh, and he was given a good shooing uh, by the local security guys, which surprised me. But guess what? Um, the policing minister, Chris Philp, has obviously been listening and watching this show. I mean, all of them do. Why wouldn't they? Um, he's got a plan to end shoplifting once and for all. Uh, he says that thieves um, can be as violent as this. The plan is you. He wants you to tackle thieves yourself. Security guards, customers, he wants them to jump right in and make a citizen's arrest. Uh, well, I saw that all happening just a couple of days ago. And as we speak here, you can see lawless Britain in all of its glory. This is a particular incident that happened a few weeks ago uh, of a guy who was thrown out for shoplifting, but then decided to come back and smash the front doors in and start punching away at people. I mean, it's an extraordinary state of affairs. I'm joined now, though, by uh, the former political editor of The Sun, George Pascal. Watson. George, very good morning to you. Uh, and a, a resplendent jacket, I have to say, you've got there. Uh, very nice to see you. Um, we've got Rishi Sunak coming up later on, so we'll talk about him uh, in a little while and what he's likely to say and what he's going to do uh, for this country and what he's going to do for the Tory party. But we are in a, a sort of extraordinary situation, aren't we, here, with, with the way that the high street has kind of been lost to shoplifters. I mean, as I say, I, I, I explained this um, situation I saw the other day, um, and I was quite surprised to see security guards Normally, security guards don't do anything. And, and I was talking to a couple of the, uh, the local shopkeepers there, and they said, just before you saw what happened, this guy was standing there with the stuff in his arms, saying to the shop, to the shop security people, there's nothing you can do. I'm going to walk out with this stuff, and you can't stop me. And that's where we are. Well, that reflects uh, a really dangerous sort of decline and collapse in many standards, people's behavioural standards mm. more than anything else. I mean, the whole point about security guards really has never been to uh, arrest and apprehend people, it's a deterrent. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at Sue Braverman, if you look at the government's immigration policy, that's... And, and you know, the, the Bibi Barge, all these things, yeah. Rwanda, are about deterrent. Right. What we're now seeing uh, is a new behaviour in this country and around the world, actually, where generations are saying, actually, come arrest me. Mm. What are you going to do? Yeah. Challenging you to your face to actually take the next move. And, of yeah. course, lots of people are, I think... Uh, perfectly legitimately concerned about what would happen to them mm. if they did right. try to apprehend somebody. And that's my concern with Chris Filt, the yes. policing minister, talking about citizens' arrests. I mean, who knows what a citizen's arrest looks like? Right. Where is the advice? And, and have where, we been told? Exactly. And what powers do you actually have? I mean, if, for example, because what I witnessed was, was quite shocking 
to, to a lot of people who are watching it. Uh, I mean, you and I, uh, who have seen plenty of fights in our time, I dare say, uh, inside and outside of various venues, um, uh, it's not a shock to see somebody punching somebody, but a lot of people were just standing there kind of staring because this guy was trying to punch his way out of uh, the grappling arms of these security men. They were in turn punching him, kicking him. You know, there was quite a lot of violent activity. I don't know if I was to do that, whether the police would then come and arrest me. And there's always a risk of that, and yeah. people are concerned about that. Listen, I, I take the view that if all of us turn a blind eye to crime, mm. then I'm afraid we deserve the society we're going to get. Yes. It's incumbent on all of us right. to take responsibility for the world we want to live in. Yes. Within reason. However, you know, having said that, I mean, we had a caller yesterday, a, a grandmother, who said that her nine-year-old grandson... Uh, was uh, got himself into a bit of an altercation playing football with some 12-year-olds. One of the 12-year-olds pulls a knife out of his rucksack right. and threatens to stab him. Now, if yeah. I'm on the streets of London and I see somebody doing something they shouldn't, how do I know they're not going to pull a machete out and start slicing me up? Well, this is exactly the problem. You know, if you think about it very carefully, and in the heat of a moment, you might not, but that's mm. how really tragic things happen in today's world. And right. you know, from a police perspective, you know, the police are desperate to be there to try and do mm. what policing is. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, they're imposed on them by the, the top brass, all sorts of uh, uh, rules and regulations which force them to step back from, organize, uh, from these sorts of situations. And it's very difficult for them, too. Absolutely right. I've got this from Mick in Wallington, who's texted this in. The police minister, Chris Filks, represents a crime and stabbing hotspot, but believes crime is dropping. He needs to get out more, as it's like Dante's Inferno out here. That's from Mick in Wallington. I mean, I also watched Grant Shapps being interviewed by Jeremy Carl this morning uh, and Nicola Thorpe, uh, who, like all Tory ministers, said, crime's going down. And you kind of go, I said to them, I said, is he standing upside down? You know, is he not looking at the figures the right way up? Because crime is not going down to anybody that I know, you know, and it's all very well saying that maybe the reported figures and the data that they've got that they're looking at means that actually crime isn't as high as it used to be. But there's no question in my mind anyway that people feel less safe, they feel less secure, uh, they feel more uh, unprotected perhaps by the police than ever. And we're in a world where we've got sort of, you know, huge numbers of immigrants coming into the country yeah. and uh, most of them, of course, go through the process correctly. But who knows who's on our streets these days? Mm. I said earlier on, attitudes are changing. People are now standing up to the establishment mm. and challenging it directly yes. to its face. We see this in schools. We see school teachers having to deal with this yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's really hard. But who, who can stand up and say, enough is enough? Mm. Uh, and it's very hard for politicians, of course, who have to present to the public the best possible uh, scenario that they can, unless they're in the opposition. Mm. And the Labour Party don't want to be uh, accused of talking down the nation the right. whole time, so right. they're soft-pedalling on it. So it's really, really hard. It's only the media, really, where these discussions are taking place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Labour Party are obviously having their conference next week, so they're keeping their powder dry to some extent. But their kind of mantra at the moment is that Britain's broken, um, the Tories broke it, basically. Um, it's hard to disagree with that. I don't like agreeing with Labour because uh, I'm not, technically speaking, a Labour supporter. I don't want to see them in government. I'd rather see the Tories actually taking a grip of what's going on and they've got a year to do it and making it actually work. But they've got to stop talking in platitudes and they've got to start actually doing things, haven't they? Well, I mean, you'll see today from Rishi Sunak's speech to the Conservative Party conference in Manchester, that's what today is all about. It's about the cult of Rishi. It's about Rishi Sunak. It's not about the Conservatives. Yeah. It's all about him. None of his cabinet ministers have had any meaningful announcements this week in Manchester's conference. Mm. They've all been told to let it all be on Rishi's day. Mm. So it'll be packed with ideas. Yeah. Pa now, he's talking about the long term. Actually, you'll see lots of short termism today because yeah. he's trying to demonstrate that he's got a grip and he's change guy and it's all new. And you don't need to worry about a Labour uh, Party coming into government. I'm the change guy. It is time for a change. The difficulty with that narrative is, of course, the Conservatives have been in power for 13 years. Well, that's the problem, isn't and, it? And they've got a, an account to uh, stand up to, which is not brilliant. No, and that is the major problem that they've got because they can't keep saying we're a new government. Rishi Sunak was in, if you want to call it the last government, the last government. Maybe not the Liz Truss one, but certainly the Boris Johnson one. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer, you know, yeah. probably the biggest job um, in the Cabinet. 
and I, I include the Prime Minister in that, you know. So his kind of a version of events, which is that, oh, come on, guys, I've only really been in for a, a few months and look at what I've been able to do so far. And even if he says that, you go, well, what have you been able to do so far? All we have heard so far about all of the alleged announcements that might come is that he's going to spend about uh, possibly £30 billion on transport. Of, um, of our money. Of our money. It's not like, you know, but that's always the problem, isn't it? It's like, well, we're going to help you out with this. And it's like, well, actually, that's uh, what I gave you to do something with, but because he's going to be doing what I assume you expect him to do, which is to kill off the HS2 link between um, Birmingham and Manchester, um, uh, he's going to supposedly give a load of money to the north so that they can build some other railways, uh, which presumably also won't be ready before I die. I'm afraid there'll be a package of uh, roads and rail and yeah. a whole mix. I mean, obviously, Rishi Sunak doesn't want to cut dead the North. Mm. I mean, part of his massive... Well, he can't afford to lose the North, can he? Well, of course, there's so many what I call purple seats, which mm. is a sort of mixture of yeah. blue and red. And yeah. those people genuinely feel that London gets everything and they're getting nothing, and this mm. is a further sign. So Rishi Sunak, you know, he's not a, he's not a bad politician. Mm. He understands that there has to be something to compensate for ending the HS2 project. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, whether or not it's going to actually make an impact, I very much doubt. And, and that's, of course, before we see the thousands of people who have been contracted to work yeah. on the future of HS2 yeah. not being able to do that. How many small businesses, supply chain businesses, will pay the price for today's decision? Yes. But Rishi today is all about, look at me, it's a change moment and I am the change guy. Yeah. It's a really high-wire act. It's not a perfect narrative for him, but... He's in a world where there aren't many brilliant choices. And therefore, that's the best thing he can yeah. do. He's going to put his weight behind. Look at me. I'm all about change. I'm young. I'm fresh. You know, contrasting with Keir Starmer, there's a 20-year age difference. Mm. Look at me. I've got you know, invigorating ideas. I'm going to change this. I'm going to change that. Time for a change when you've been in power mm. 13 years. Doesn't sound like the automatically obvious thing to say but he's going to try his best to pull it off. Yeah, because if you take yourself back to 2019 and that massive victory by Boris Johnson um, just before um, the, 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 the leaving of the European Union, I mean, the world has changed unbelievably, hasn't it, since then? And it's only four years. And it's going to continue to change yeah. at that kind of pace. And that's yeah. the really difficult thing for anybody in government, Mike. Governing now in an internet digital age is so hard. You've got to be so responsive, mm. you've got to have eyes everywhere, you've got to make rational, clever, long-term decisions mm. based on having to live moment by moment. Mm. You've got incoming noise and distraction the whole time. It's super and also, in our democratic way of politics, you have to keep your own party yeah. happy. Right. And we know the Conservative Parliamentary Party is hugely fragmented, mm. people with all sorts of... Well, also, as, as is the membership uh, side of it, uh, as are the kind of uh, the local councillors even. We had one guy ejected from, uh, uh, from London Assembly yesterday because yeah. he wasn't happy about what sort of problem yeah. we were saying. And the but, chair, not just one guy, the chairman yeah. of the Conservatives in the London in Assembly. In London Assembly, yeah, which is bizarre. Another thing that, that they've, they've mooted, that they've floated as an interesting idea, is the idea of sending prisoners abroad. I mean, we've got loads of people coming here from abroad. Uh, this government now wants to send our own people abroad to go and spend time in a jail. I mean, again, it sounds like it's a good idea on paper, but could it ever work? Like lots of things, they sound brilliant on paper, yeah. and then it's about sort of hitting where my heart mm. is, and you can yeah. understand we've got the same uh, instincts, and that's all good for short-term politics mm. and then general election year. The practicalities are almost impossible. Yeah. Others have thought about it. Others have tried it. There are no new ideas, really, in politics. Others have looked at these sorts of things. And it is true that there is an establishment out there who are geared up to try and stop these things. Mm. The fact is the National Crime Agency has said what we need in this country is uh, real sort of disincentives for people trying to come to this country. Yeah. And, and also, we don't want foreign criminals here either. So what are we going to do? We need to show that there's a way of dealing with these things, and it's not a nice place to come yeah. if you want to come here for the wrong reasons. Right. But, of course, we're welcome. See, I think we could go far with any sort of idea about finding and building... Uh, new prisons in places that we already actually own. Now, whether it's um, a, prop a property in, in this country, whether it's an island off the Hebrides or something which is currently uninhabited, or whether it's, you know, the Bass Rock sitting outside of Edinburgh, or whether it's, I don't know, um, a bit of the Falkland Islands. You know, we've got plenty of property and land around the world. You know, why not build a sort of Devil's Island-style prison for the worst offending people and just send them there? And then, you know, we don't have to think about it again. 
It seems like a, a, a straightforward idea. Doesn't it? Why has no home, home secretary up until now <laughs> ever done it? I mean, there's a reason for that, and it's Be, because well, because they're frightened of something. They're frightened of something exactly. What, what are they frightened what of? What are they frightened mm. of? And it's to do with you know who wants to have that in their backyard. Mm. So there's immediately there's a sort of not in my backyard. Yeah, well that's why you do it somewhere where there is no backyard. Well, that's right. right? But then there, there are costs to that. How are you going to staff the prison? Who's going to be up there doing the sort of the work? The prison officers mm. they don't want to go and live there either. There's a cost implication in terms of uh, you know. The you make a good civil servant, George. I, I mean, mean, you're just telling me why things can't be I'm done. I'm telling you why they you know. say it can't be. No, done. I know. But I mean, would, and I realise that you are right. But but. That this is why politics is so hard, mm. because you need to be something like Suella Braverman, who yesterday made a big, uh, punchy speech, and she's already this. getting blasted for it, isn't she? She is, and she's she's making a virtue of the fact that you don't have to like me, mm. you just have to respect me. Yeah. which I think is a good position for a politician. It is a good position for a politician, but she needs to also follow it through with some action as well. And you can't do it yourself. Mm. You do need, if you're the Home Secretary, the Home Office mm. to come with you. You yeah. need other, you need the Treasury to come with yeah. you. And that's the difficulty of politics in our country, is that you may have all the ideas, and you might be representing our viewers and listeners today, but you've also got to bring the executors right. with you. But that's the problem as well with Whitehall, isn't it? I mean, we had a guest here, Stephen Edgington from The Telegraph yesterday, who's written a whole series of really interesting pieces about the wokery that has infected every single government department. You know, from the Home Office to the Foreign Office to the Department of Defence. You know, they're more interested now in, in making sure that they've got a, the right sign-off and the right pronoun on their email than actually of doing their job. And we've got a whole department now dedicated to net zero. And here we've got Rishi Sunak talking about moving further away from those targets and pushing them into the background. I mean, I imagine there's a battle going on every day uh, between civil servants and government. And there is a battle going on every single day. And if you're a politician, an elected politician, you have to watch your back. If I was one of those guys or if I was advising a cabinet minister, one of the critical things is to say, watch your back. Because yeah. you might think you've got the, uh, you know, the people behind you and you're doing the democratic thing. But behind your back, if you've got civil servants who don't like what you're doing, who've got a different mission and a different mindset, there is no reason on earth that would stop them conniving to get you out. And yeah. that's why a lot of you know, bodies are littering the battlefield. From and the that's what's world. wrong with the system, it seems to me. But um, we've got to end it there. George, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. George Pascoe Watson, their former uh, political editor at The Sun. Uh, there's so much to do today, so much to talk about. We want to hear from you, of course, as well. 0344 499 I'm going to be telling you what I think Rishi Sunak should say, uh, but he is going to deliver his first conference speech as Prime Minister. Could it also be his last? Now, I think it's fair to say the Tory conference hasn't gone exactly how Rishi Sunak had hoped. HS2 dramas, cabinet members stealing his thunder. Um, I mean, apart from anything else, just have a listen to Home Secretary Suella Braverman's speech from yesterday. The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming. Now, there's a word to be conjured with, a hurricane that's coming. She knew what she was saying. Lots of people don't like the fact that she said it. I think she's absolutely right to draw everybody's attention to what is now one of the biggest stories that threatens people's kind of environment around Britain. Now, there are also rumours that West Midlands Mayor Andy Street could resign over HS2. How will Rishi Sunak deal with all this when he speaks to Tory activists just before midday. We are getting a few kind of um, uh, whispers about what he might be saying. There's some suggestion that he will actually uh, bring £30 billion to the table uh, to try and assuage those people in the north of England who wanted HS2 to connect them to Birmingham uh, from Leeds and from Manchester. Uh, it's said that he might be giving this money up to uh, various cities so that they can build... Uh, they can build railways uh, which they actually need as opposed to just building something which they don't need. But let's, let's find out from uh, Talk Radio's political editor, Peter Cardwell, exactly what he understands is likely to be going on. Uh, he's up there at Tory party conference. Uh, there was some uh, political cabinet meeting started a few minutes ago. Uh, what's going on, Peter? Very good morning to you. 
Good morning, Mike. Yes, just a few minutes ago, as you say, political cabinet happened. So it's different from a usual cabinet meeting, which has civil servants in it. So that's just uh, members of the cabinet who are members of the Conservative Party. So you've got everybody around the table at the Midland Hotel, which is just across the way from this convention centre, literally about one minute within the secure zone. They're talking at the moment, I understand, about HS2 and whether it goes ahead or not. Now, the decision, as we know, has probably been made to scrap the northern leg of HS2. So that's being ratified, signed off, rubber stamped by the political cabinet. I actually had, uh, a meet, uh, had a breakfast with a cabinet minister this morning who confirmed that that's where she was on her way off to. Started at about 10 o'clock and that's underway at the moment. So it's a big decision. Rishi Sunak says that at this conference he wants to make long-term decisions for a brighter future is what he said. We should get an answer on that long-term decision, a very definitive answer within his speech in a couple of hours, well, in about an hour and a half's time here at uh, Manchester. And what's interesting as well is the reaction to that. You talked about Andy Street there, the mayor of the West Midlands, who may resign. I think what he might do is actually resign during the speech, which would totally take the focus off what uh, Rishi Sunak is talking about. So until it is clear, until that is properly announced, Andy Street, the mayor of uh, West Midlands, who's a Conservative, but nonetheless very much a character in his own right. He's someone who was uh, the head of John Lewis. He's actually talked previously about perhaps running as an independent for that role rather than necessarily as a Conservative again. So he's very personally popular. So we might see him resigning from the Conservative Party, and that would be a major, major blow to Rishi Sunak, especially if it happens at the time of his speech or immediately afterwards. We take the focus off everything else mm. that Rishi Sunak wants to talk about. And there is a lot of chunky stuff in that speech, we're told. Yes. And, I mean, presumably uh, you're saying he could resign as a Tory member, if you like, uh, resign from yeah. the party, but continue to remain uh, in his actual job as mayor. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. So it's not as if he's a cabinet member. It's not as if he's even an MP. He is the mayor of the West Midlands, which includes Birmingham. Birmingham was, is, of course, at the start of the le second leg. Birmingham to Manchester line is the thing we're all talking about, that leg of HS2 that is probably going to be cancelled. So it goes north, and then there's another uh, part of that line that goes sort of northeast to the East Midlands, and that's the bit that's probably going to be cancelled. So, yes, Andy Street, very, very annoyed about this. He talked yesterday about cancelling the future, is how he put it. There are various other mayors who are affected by this. Tracy Braben is Labour. She's in uh, Yorkshire, for example. She's very annoyed about it, as is Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester. So their Labour, they sort of would say that anyway, wouldn't they? Although I'm sure they feel very sincerely what they say. But for a Conservative Mayor in Andy Street to resign his membership of the Conservatives, it may happen, it may not happen, but he hasn't denied today that he's thinking of doing it. He's waiting to see what the actual announcement is, to, for it to be clear. Of course, everybody's been talking about it for at least the last two days. It has dominated the party political conference here in Manchester, but we should finally get an answer yeah. from the Prime Minister's lips, not just what he wants to cancel, but also what he's going to do, as you mentioned, that £30 billion, perhaps for other projects, for other things that might be a more sensible use of money in Richard yeah. Sunak's mind, but perhaps not in that of other politicians, including Andy Street. No, of course. And I assume it's inconceivable that he won't make that announcement, uh, that he suddenly just sort of fluffs it all again and says, well, we'll be deciding sometime in the future about exactly oh. what to do with HS2. He has to kind of put his uh, nail his colours to the mast, if you like. But it's been a strange conference, hasn't it, so far? I mean, you've been to many of these events, Peter. You were uh, a former advisor in Downing Street yourself, so you've been on both sides of the divide, if you like. Um, I mean, the Prime Minister seems to be uh, kind of missing in action, it, it would appear. You know, he was famously called inaction man by Sir Keir Starmer. But so far, all the news has been about Suella Braverman, it's been about Liz Truss, um, who was very popular when she made a speech, it's been about Nigel Farage being there, dancing with Pretty Patel, you know, various people kind of tilting at uh, the idea that maybe Rishi Sunak's finished and maybe we should be making plans for, you know, never mind the short term, but for the long term, as to what happens after Rishi Sunak loses the next election. It must be a strange vibe, is it? It's deeply weird. I think it's probably the weirdest conference <laughs> I've ever weird. been to. The one, the, 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 the one last year, the one last year was just madness. I mean, I literally had a senior person who was a senior special advisor crying on my shoulder at one point. It was just, it was chaos. Well, you this had that one effect more on people, Peter. What can I say? <laughs> well, I don't, mainly women. <laughs> um, but no, uh, here, here it's been, I think three separate things have happened. So I think there, there's what the government wants us to be talking about, and nobody's talking about, you know, the living wage or the justice announcement yesterday or even trans uh, people in, in uh, wards at hospitals. No one's really talking about that. 
there's what the government doesn't want to talk about but has been forced to talk about NHS2. And then there are other people, other big beasts, who have been at this conference, who've drawn a crowd. Theresa May even had a huge crowd of people sign, uh, there to, uh, at a book signing. You've had uh, Liz Truss standing room only at her event. She wasn't really saying anything too different to what she said previously. But certainly that was a very, very big event. And then Sciola Braverman's barnstorming speech yesterday, a full hall for the first time. And then other people you might expect, actually, to draw a crowd, people like James Cleverly, barely half full in the hall. Jeremy Hunt, similarly, not too many people there. Well, it was, it was, it was relatively full, fuller anyway. But yeah, it's been a very, very strange conference. And I think that Rishi Sumak has a big opportunity, but it's also quite a, quite a risk later on. He's got to pull it out of the bag. But then, of course, given the polls the way they are, given the mood here at, in Manchester, he's kind of got nothing to lose, so he should really just go for it. And uh, I think HS2 will dominate. But if there are other things in that speech that people can say, actually, maybe that's not a bad idea. If he can talk about the change that he wants to bring to politics, it's quite weird. He's talking about 30 years of, of sort of stagnant politics. Well, the Conservatives have been in government for most of the last 30 years. So he's really, it's interesting because so much of the public is saying they want change. And he's made a decision, a political decision to say, actually, I'm going to talk about change because that's what you want to talk about. Yeah. I'm going to promise change rather than saying, actually, you're wrong. What's happening at the moment is working. Because I think a lot of people realise, look at public services, try to get a GP's appointment, that things just aren't working at the moment. But that is the problem. I mean, outside of the political sort of Westminster bubble, if you like, people's issues are more real. You know, they're worried about the rising yep. crime. I mean, Grant Shapps was on, as I said earlier, to George Pascoe Watson, um, and he actually said these words to Jeremy Carl and Nicola Thorpe, that crime is down. Now, he might be looking at a set of statistics that say crime is down, but crime is not down. People's yeah. perception is that everywhere they go, they actually probably witness an act of crime being committed. I witnessed one myself this week, you know, where a shoplifter was being attacked by two security guards, three security guards, actually, uh, in my local shopping centre. Uh, I also had friends who tell me every single day about something they've witnessed, and there is a massive issue with people's safety, uh, with people having their houses robbed, their cars stolen, mm -hmm. you know, with shoplifting, which is a national uh, epidemic, it would seem now. There's also, of course, the uh, the migrant boats problem, which no matter what Samela Braverman says about hurricanes, you know, they're not doing anything about. Nobody sees anything being done properly. Um, you know, these are the issues that people care about. And as you say, not seeing a doctor, yeah. NHS strikes going on. You know, it's all very well talking about the future. But what about the here and now? That's what he needs to address, in yeah. my view. Yeah. I agree with you, and I think it is a big opportunity, not just for Rishi Sunak, but probably for Keir Starmer next week in Liverpool. I'm going to be there as well for the Labour conference to talk about value for money in taxation. We've got the highest taxation since the Second World War, and actually people don't mind that much paying... Nobody wants to pay loads of tax, I but mind. people don't mind tax... To, to, to a degree. I want my taxes to be as low as possible. But at the same time, if you're paying high tax but you get really good public services, the evidence is that people are okay with that mostly. Some people aren't, but some people are. So what's interesting is if Labour characterise this and say, look, you've got this very high tax burden, but actually what are you getting for it? You're not getting bobbies on the beat. You're not getting people, uh, police investigating low-level crimes. Tell someone who's been burgled it's a low-level crime. It certainly isn't. Mm. When you have a Home Secretary a few weeks ago who said police should investigate every crime they have evidence for, I mean, why is that not happening? Yeah. And the fact that there's so many things, like GP's appointments, class sizes, uh, try and get a dentist appointment, all those kind of issues, uh, housing that people say, we're paying all this tax to the government, we're getting, you know, paying a huge amount of money, £180 billion a year for the NHS, yet it's just not working. So whether if Rishi Sunak says, I can change it and make it work, or if Keir Starmer says next week, trust me, I'll fix it, well, that's the political opportunity here, crucially, if people believe them. Yeah, I mean, Rishi Sunak's also got the problem of people just being a bit fed up with the Tory government yeah. because they've been in for such a long time. Similar to when um, John Major uh, ended up getting, uh, you know, gazumped, if you like, by Tony Blair. When 1997 came around, people had just had enough. They were just like, you know what, I think we do yeah. need a change. Yeah. And if you really want to make a change, you put in a different party. And that's, this, that's his problem, yeah. isn't it? I spoke to a very senior Conservative MP recently who said in the... Look, exactly what you're saying, Mike... In the 2022 local election, she was campaigning and she said people are really angry. They were shouting at her, they were saying, you awful Tories, you've let us down, you know, you've taken us for mugs. This year, when she was campaigning in the local elections 2023, people were just, do you know what, I'm just over it. I'm, yeah. just, I'm just over the Conservative Party. I've just, you know, no malice, don't hate Rishi Sunak, don't think he's an awful person, just ready for a bit of a change. And that's the, that's the worry. When people are involved and passionate about politics, well, then you can maybe have an argument with them and, and, and discuss things and debate things. But when they're over it, 
you know, she said it was a bit like a divorce, like being in the middle of a divorce in 2022, and then at the end of it, just the divorce was over, just, you know, I'm past it. I couldn't care anymore. And that's the real danger. And actually, for Keir Starmer, that's a risk as well. Because there are a lot of people, including in our Talk Today poll on Monday morning, 13% of people undecided. And Rishi Sunak will think, actually, maybe I can get to some of those undecided people. Mm. Maybe I can get to some of those people who are annoyed with the Conservative Party, but not convinced by Labour. Maybe I can bring them back into the fold. I think it's people keep talking, I talked to senior people in Downing Street last night about what they call a narrow path to victory for Rishi Sunak. I don't think it's there. I think it's I don't think it's narrow. I don't think it exists. But if he wants to turn the super tanker around, he's got to do something pretty radical today. And if he doesn't turn it around, what are you hearing about the most likely successor? I mean, who is it likely to be? Um, it seems to me it's likely to be a woman, isn't it? Yes. I think there are three women who are uh, likely to run, and I think there are two men who are likely to run as well. So three women, obviously Sula Braverman. I think Kimmy Badenoch, the, the, the shine has come off her slightly, mm. I think. I don't think she's just quite as popular, especially with Sula Braverman's speech yesterday. So I think from the right of the Conservative Party, uh, Sula Braverman is, is the key candidate there. From the left of the Conservative Party, probably Penny Morden will run. I think, I think, I think uh, James Cleverley, will as well, and I think that uh, probably Grant Sharps as well. Mm. Goodness me, that's quite a field, isn't it? There's plenty of them. Peter, yeah. thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell there reporting into us from Tory Party Conference, where you will, of course, hear Rishi Sunak's speech right here uh, on Talk TV. Uh, a couple of quick uh, texts for you. Don't forget you can text us here at 87222. Uh, you can call us on 0344 499 I want to hear from you about what you want to hear from Rishi Sunak, because I'm going to be telling you exactly what I think he should be talking about uh, very, very shortly. Uh, but on the subject of lawless Britain... Uh, which is something I think people care an awful lot about. Uh, Lynn says this, usually left-wing, middle-class, woke people who have caused all this disobedience because we are not allowed to discipline our own kids anymore. Uh, let us take care of our own kids. And, I mean, in the end, I'm afraid that is what has to happen because we have to see that the children who are now running amok in our streets and stabbing one another uh, have obviously got a problem uh, with discipline, have obviously got a problem uh, because nobody's told them they can't do it. And that seems to me to be a major problem. There's something very important I have to say to you uh, before we do anything else, and that is my words of wisdom for Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister. He's going to get up uh, in just over an hour's time uh, to talk to us, in fact, less than an hour's time, to talk to us, the nation, about his plans for the future. Uh, he's going to be setting out his stall. He's going to be telling us, for the first time as Prime Minister at a Tory party conference, what he thinks that the country should be doing to improve itself and how he can help along the way. Well, I've got some words of advice for Rishi Sunak. Forget about HS2, right? One, it's never going to be built in time for anybody to actually use before the world ends. Two, there is absolutely no point in giving another £30 billion to the north of England to build more railways that won't be ready uh, until the next millennium. There is absolutely no point in banging on about how you're ready for change and how you want change. You've got to do something now and you've got to do something today that's going to make a difference to people's lives. You've got to stop the epidemic of crime that is currently up and down the country in every high street, in every supermarket, with every passing day we see yet more videos of people running in and, uh, in and out of shops, stealing things, getting beaten up, uh, taking on security guards, absolutely lawless behaviour which needs to be stopped and needs to be nipped, not even the bud because the bud has gone a long time ago, but people need to feel safe as they walk around their homes and they walk around their hometowns, their home villages and their home cities and right now that is not the case. He's also got to make sure that something is done before the end of this year to stop people coming here illegally on small boats. Those are the two things that people care about. He needs to also fix the NHS, which is woefully bad and woefully useless. People can't get dentists, people can't see doctors, more and more people are having to spend money to go privately to save their own lives. It's an absolute disgrace. If he can do those three things, then he'll get my vote and he'll probably get yours. So Rishi Sunak, listen up. Fix the NHS, stop the boats and stop letting people run riot in our streets. And if you can do those things, we might give you a second chance. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. But now, here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, I'm delighted to say Hannah Hope has joined me from The Sun because The Sun front page this morning, uh, Victoria, my pain uh, over David's affair. Um, an incredible exclusive, a great story, because uh, here we've got... Um, another Netflix documentary, Hannah, uh, and one that actually I might want to watch, unlike the one about Harry and Meghan. <laughs> yes, this is this is proper juice. Yes. Uh, this four-part series on Netflix simply called Beckham. Yeah. So it's a look back at David Beckham's iconic career. Yeah. But we actually get uh, a lot of bang for our buck. Mm. They reveal lots of uh, never-seen-before footage from their private life, yeah. but also talk about that affair in 2003. With Rebecca Lewis, right? 20 years ago yes. with Rebecca Lewis. I mean, it's amazing in a way that this hasn't been done before because, you know, forget about the Kardashians and Harry and Meghan and all of these kind of, you know, so-called reality stars. I mean, these are the real original reality stars, aren't they? Absolutely. They're the big Biggest showbiz, and Bex. And Bex, the biggest showbiz couple in our country yeah. and our biggest showbiz exports. But what's interesting is it is David Beckham's own production company, right. Studio 99. But so I think when it was announced, we all thought, oh, maybe it's going to be slightly whitewashed, mm. slightly gentle. Mm. But they really have gone the whole hog right. and revealed uh, a lot of uh, very personal stuff. And also uh, Victoria, even though the documentary isn't just about her, she's revealed all sorts yeah. of insight and saying how she. She was very depressed when they were working in Madrid. Yeah. She, it was the most unhappy time of her life. And they also talk about the aftermath of that affair. Yes. Um, although they never name Rebecca Lewis. They never quite admit that it happened either, no, do they? they skirt over it, right. but they do show uh, newspaper front pages of that time, mm. which quite cleverly uh, puts it all on blast. Yeah. Uh, and I think it is, you know, very personal. And, and I think that it would have been very difficult for them to really do a warts and all documentary mm. as a four-parter without skirting over right. Right. With it having to go to over that issue. And I think they probably would have been criticised for it as well. Yeah, I think so. Because for people who are perhaps not old enough to remember um, how big these two were, I mean, they were, they were massive, weren't they? Everything from, you know, when he got sent off in the World Cup uh, over in France, where people were sort of burning effigies of him, hanging him from lampposts, to the whole kind of, you know, drama, the docudrama about going to Real Madrid, the, the Rebecca Luz affair. I mean, even my... I'm thinking, as I'm talking about him, uh, I'm thinking of that vision of him going up the Thames on a boat when the opening ceremony of 2012 yes. Olympics was going on. I mean, this guy um, has been a sort of British icon, and not just here, but also abroad. He now owns a football team in America. You know, he played over there, I think, as well, didn't he? Um, you know, it's just an incredible sort of story of success, really. Absolutely. From the boy from West Ham. Yeah, absolutely. And also, actually, I mean, I've just be spoken about the affair. Any football fan is going to love the behind-the-scenes mm. yeah. uh, tell-all about all of those iconic football moments. There is actually interviews from Alex Ferguson right. within the documentary, and David Beckham admits that with that famous locker-room boot yes. kick that left him with a scar on right. his uh, eyebrow, yeah. he actually went for Alex yeah. but was held back by teammates. So, right. I mean, any football fan is going to love the gritty behind-the-scenes gossip. So, yeah. I mean, I actually do think it's an entertaining watch. I'm probably a bit more entertaining than the Harry and Meghan one. Well, there's so reference. much more to them. I mean, the trouble with the Harry and Meghan stuff was that it was all about Harry and Meghan just talking to each other and, you know, having some fun and walking around their garden. <laughs> you know, these are people who've... I mean, you know, whatever you might want to say about, about Posh Spice, you know, she had a, a musical career which was very successful. You know, she's got a fashion business, you know, which may or may not be as successful. But, you know, these... And he had a proper job. You know, these, they've actually got achievements that they can talk about and, and you know, real-life experiences that...
that are actually worth watching. Yeah, and, the, and like you say, they do literally come from, you know, especially David, yeah. very working-class background. Right. And he's a boy done good, isn't he? And he really he's is. actually living the English dream yeah. uh, and shows that aspirational lifestyle that, you know, anyone can kind of achieve right. with a bit of luck. Absolutely <laughs> right. We've got a clip, I think, from the trailer. Um, let's have a look and see if we can catch a flavour uh, of... Beckham. Oh, no, we haven't. No, well, we'll come back to that. Um, but, you know, the point about the whole um, Netflix drama, though, I mean, obviously it's taken them a while to suddenly get to this point. Why do you think they've suddenly decided to do it now, then? I think that they're both at a really good time in their careers. But I also think, on a personal note, they seem very happy and stable, and now feels a very good time to talk about it. Both David and Victoria have described the experience mm. as cathartic and like therapy. There's over 50 hours of interview yeah. with David Beckham. I'd love to see some of the uh, footage that ended up on the cutting room yeah. floor. I bet there are even more revelations. Yes. But I think that they obviously feel confident and strong enough to now address that very rocky time. Mm. And like you say, he is now, he owns his own football team. Their kids, oh, there was the pictures of them all on the red carpet last night. Well, their kids, their kids are now celebrities up. in their own right, <laughs> yeah, aren't they? Although, absolutely. although I'd put them more in the Harry and Meghan uh, area because they haven't <laughs> done anything much yet. I think we now have the clip. Let's have a look. Six mile. It definitely didn't change me. We changed. There's no doubt about that. It's a red card. I don't think I've ever talked about it just because I can't. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. It took a toll on me that I never even knew myself. Ferguson admitted he had kicked the boot accidentally striking Beckham. And then I've gone like that. And then I've gone like that. You went at him? Yeah. It's really entertaining when the circus comes to town, right? Unless you're in it. We were drowned. But he just kept going. I mean, I mean, maybe I don't know whether everybody's going to feel the same way I do. But you know, here he is scoring that amazing goal against Greece because um, he was a great footballer as well. And the thing that I've, I've met a lot of footballers in my various different roles here at, uh, um, at Talk TV when I was at Talk Sport. You know, they're always far more interesting people than people give them credit for. You know, because to be a top-level athlete and a top-level, you know, Premier League international player, you've got to be some kind of character because of the abuse. I mean, he used to get terrible abuse every single time he played. You know, they used to sing terrible songs about his wife. You know, they're strong characters, these guys, and I have a lot of admiration for them. And also, you've got to remember, David Beckham has always had the mickey taken out of him because everyone jokes that he's stupid. Yeah. I mean, look, he's not the most eloquent of Yeah, chaps. yeah, he's very stupid. He's also very rich, so he can't <laughs> be that dim, can he? I know. But I think what... You you see on this documentary is that he's found his voice now yeah. and he's able to talk about what he's been through. Yeah. Um, and there's also actually some nice at home uh, moments where you see that he's actually a keen chef. He cooks roast dinner yeah. for his family. You see him like cleaning the oven. So you see those more down to earth mm. moments. The other thing to mention is that this documentary really has been given the A-list treatment. It's been produced by an American, Fisher Stevens, who was recommended to the Beckhams yeah. by none other than Leonardo DiCaprio. Of so course. they really have gone A-list <laughs> with the production right. of it. But as as you, as we were saying, well, it looks great, yeah. though, doesn't it? And it's going to be enthralling from what... And so when is it going to be made available to us poor peasants? It's all available on Netflix now. Is it? Yeah. So right. I, I got up very early this morning to watch uh, as much as I could before coming here. OK. For you, Mike. Anyway. Brilliant. And, I mean, um, were you taken by it in the same way? I mean, is it one of those things you binge watch, you just watch all four? Yeah, I mean, as a journalist and having... A, even Well, just even as a, a Spice Girls fan and a football fan, just seeing all these behind-the-moments, um, you know, backstage, what's really going on, was really interesting. And I think that it's going to do really well. And I, I wonder if this is now going to propel them as a family back up to yeah. the top with this renewed interest in them. It's, it'll be interesting to see what they do next. Right. Yeah, it really is, because, I mean, I mean, you hear different stories about her sort of fashion business and how successful or otherwise it is. Um, but she's always able to get herself sort of back into the public eye. It was only, what, last week when we were seeing new pictures of her... I don't know if that was from this documentary of her with her sort of biceps not bulging exactly, but, you know, having obviously done some kind of workout to make herself look more physically kind of, you know, you know, strength, strong, I suppose. And then, again, that became a thing. And, and suddenly, you know, the papers were all going, oh, well, this is now the new thing for women. You know, you've got to show your kind of, you know, ripply arms. She said strong, not skinny, I yeah. think, and skinny so boring. Mm. So, yeah, she always reinvented 
presents herself a little yeah. bit like Madonna, who's, as we know, is still going at 65. Right. On, uh, on Friday, Victoria had her fashion show in mm. uh, Paris Fashion Week, and you obviously had the whole family there. And then you had Anna Winter, who is US Vogue's editor, right. so she's like the queen of fashion. Right. And then you have Kim Kardashian who, there. Did she not go with Bill Nye to um, the Met Gala or something? <laughs> yes. She's now dating Bill Nye, isn't she? I mean, <laughs> yes. don't tell me I'm not up to date with all this stuff. But, I'm very I mean, impressed, Mike. Thank you very much indeed. You know, we cover all subjects here at the Independent Republic. But no, I, I just, you know, I'm, I, it's fashionable to hate David Beckham and to think Posh Spice is a bit of a waste of space. I've always quite liked them. I just think they've had a terrible time. And as he said there in that clip, you know, when he was the kind of pariah of the world for British people or English fans anyway, I mean, that must have been horrible for him. Yeah, he really talked. He, he actually wells up and gets a bit teary-eyed mm. in the documentary. I'm not uh, surprised. And they talk about having to have therapy to go through yeah. these things. But I think what was really admirable is that you never really saw him lash out at his fans, at the public. No. He absorbed it all, kept his head down, right. and dealt with it very respectfully. Really, didn't he? He did, and he's emerged from it. I think a, a, a much more admirable individual than, than some other people. And I, you know, th there are some people I have a go at, but I'm not having a go at these guys because I think I think they're great. Great Britons, actually, if they, we had a wow. prize for them, that's what I would say. High praise from Mike You Graham. wouldn't expect that from me, would you? <laughs> Hannah, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Hannah Hope from The Sun. Uh, the story's in The Sun this morning. Um, the Netflix show is out there. Um, I, I'm a great admirer. Uh, you, might, you, you might think I've gone mad. Um, but no, I think I, I'm happy to say that I'm a great admirer of Posh and Bex. Um, uh, so if you're watching, because I know you probably are, because why wouldn't you be? Um, have a nice day. The man uh, in his 50s who was attacked by a suspected XL bully dog in Sunderland has died. Uh, a 44-year-old man has been arrested on suspicion of murder. Um, I'm joined now by dog behaviourist Stan Rawlinson. Stan, a very good morning to you. I'm sorry to have to be talking to you under such tragic, terrible circumstances, but, you know, we heard what just two weeks ago that the Prime Minister said they're going to outlaw these dogs, they're going to ban these dogs. Um, it seems like every week there's yet another incident and, and, and yet another deadly incident. You're absolutely right, Mike, and good morning. Um, this is an unusual case, though. Not an unusual case because of the dog, but it's an unusual case because uh, the owner's been charged with murder, yeah. and that suggests that he deliberately set that dog on that person uh, and a, that dog actually went for that person's throat uh, and that caused the feet, fatal injuries yeah. that killed it so this is, is quite a rare one this but that that is a typical situation of weaponizing these dogs and uh, and let's face it uh, they, uh, some of these very big dogs uh, are weapons and can be used as weapons. Yeah, and the problem is as well that they seem to have an instinct, these particular dogs, to go for the throat. You know, we've seen uh, incidents on video in recent times. Remember that one in Birmingham where the dog was kind of running around after people in a, in a forecourt of a petrol station? And it was literally, it ju they jump up and they go for the throat as if it's their instinct to do so. It is instinctual for that. Uh, we have to remember that these are... are uh, dogs that can also be used uh, in in situations of hunting, uh, uh, some of uh, a bred for bear hunting and uh, uh, other large animals, uh, pigs, uh, the, the the wild pigs and things like that, uh, and uh, they are naturally inclined to go for the throat, and a lot of the fatal uh, deaths have been caused by throat injuries, uh, particularly because of the cartilage arteries go down the side of the neck, and if the dog bites into that, then, you know, it, it's, it's game over almost. You know, you just cannot save that person no. because they will bleed out particularly quickly. Mm. It's horrifying, uh, and, uh, and I'm hoping um, I, I wouldn't like to see them banned completely. What I would like to see is a, is a, a is a very strict requirement for a license for what could be called potentially dangerous dogs, and that wouldn't be for a specific breed. That would be a type of dog, right. shall we say, that is particularly bred for dog fighting, shall we say. Uh, uh, and there's a lot of dog fighting still goes on in this country. There's a lot goes on all way around the world. And a lot of these dogs have been trained to kill. And of course, what they do with the dogs is a lock on down around the throat. So that's another reason why these dogs go for the throat. Yeah. So will Rishi Sunak's ban have any effect? I mean, how will it be carried out? 
uh, it'd be very, very difficult, Mike. Uh, and the reason being that what is called breed-specific legislation, BSL, that's what it's called. And breed-specific means it is a breed. XL bullies are not a breed. They are uh, a crossbreed. They have a, a basic genetic start. Now, that genetic start, Mike, is the American Pitbull Terrier. And then other dogs are crossed to that to make it larger, mm. more muscular, and in some cases, more aggressive. It's a shocking story, but Stan, thank you very much indeed. Stan Rawlinson there on the latest shocking event, uh, this time up in Sunderland, where a man uh, has been killed and another man has been charged with his murder uh, after a dog attack, an XL bully dog attack, uh, that basically uh, ripped his uh, throat out, and that's the problem. Um, arrested on suspicion of murder, I'm told, not actually charged, but the problem is that the dog has now been destroyed, but the damage, unfortunately, um, has already been done. Um, we'll bring in more on that, of course, uh, as it comes out throughout the course of the day here uh, at Talk TV. But let's move on now to Suella Braverman, because a storm is brewing on British shores uh, after the Home Secretary, uh, in her Conservative Party conference speech uh, last night, set off what can only be the described wind... as a hurricane. The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming. Here to discuss this, our immigration lawyer, Ivan Sampson, and former Brexit Party MEP, uh, Ben Habib. Uh, welcome to both of you. Good morning. Um, Ivan, let me start with you. Um, a lot of people will be critical of what Suella Braverman said. It's clearly um, very evocative language. You know, the winds of change were something that, that even people who perhaps weren't old enough to remember them um, is, is a kind of a, a phrase which, which conjures up the independence movements in Africa, the way that people moved across Europe and came to this country to live and to seek a new life and all of that. And this is a very different suggestion she's making. Um, people do care about this issue and there's massive, massive disagreement about it. Do you think she was right to say what she said? No, I don't think she was right. I think it was divisive. I think that... Uh, I've not heard a Home Secretary use that type of language. Um, and I think what she's doing is electioneering and using that uh, platform to do that. Um, look, the, her figures are also way out. She's sort of claiming that hundreds of millions of people are going to be fleeing to the country or could potentially mm. come to the UK, let's put it that way. Simply not true. The UNCHR puts the figure at 30 million now. Right. So that's not That's correct. all right, then. Yeah, well... <laughs> so, just another 30 million, no problem, Ben, right? If you look at the numbers <laughs> coming here, we're probably 15th or 16th yeah. on the league of number of asylum seekers. Look, you've got to... Yeah, but, she, but she's making a point, Ivan, isn't she? she the point she's making is that because of the lax rules that we have for getting into this country, yes. the potential number of people who could qualify is that big. There's a distinction between genuine asylum seekers and economic migrants. I'm all for mm. remove economic migrants immediately. Yeah. We've already got powers to do that. Problem is that the Home Office is not doing that. Mm. That's the problem. Yeah, that is and the problem. don't blame genuine asylum seekers. We should take our fair share. And that's what I'm saying. Well, some people would disagree with that. Ben might be one of them. I mean, you <laughs> often talk about this with me, Ben. Um, I'm not sure what our fair share really means. We're a very small country. We're a very populated country, much more populated than many other countries. My problem with Suella Braverman is not the words that she uses, it's the fact that she's not doing anything about it. Yeah, I mean, that's a very valid criticism. I do want to just defend Suella, though. Um, as Ivan said, mainstream politicians just haven't really faced up to this issue. Mm. And, look, all societies can be better as a result of migration. All societies over centuries can evolve, uh, adapt, uh, take on values from other cultures and come out of it as a stronger, homogeneous culture. But what we've had in the United Kingdom over the last 25 years is more migration than we've ever had in the, in the entire history of the mm. United Kingdom before that. Yeah. And it's not just illegal migration, it's migration, whether it's legal or illegal. And in a way, Suella in her speech was... Um, warning about both of them. Hmm. She didn't explicitly draw the distinction, but actually she was warning us about both of them. And when she spoke in Washington a couple of weeks ago, she actually explicitly talked about the rate of migration itself, legal and illegal. And we must be aware of that as a society, not just because of the economic burden that all these migrants create for the country, but for the, the danger that they pose to the social fabric. And we see this, multiculturalism, multiculturalism is not working because we're not getting 
a, a, an evolution of our society in a homogeneous manner. What we're getting is lots of different cultures operating in silos mm. and often abutting against each other. And, ha and, you know, we've seen violence, for example, as a result mm. of this. So all hats off to Suella for having the courage to stand up and call it out. Because we can't... If we, we cannot treat the problem if we don't diagnose it properly mm. in the first place. And she has at last, in mainstream politics, got up and diagnosed the problem. Yeah. But I do agree with you. Her action, sadly, is very lacking. Yes. And what I would like to see, and Ivan may disagree, I can't remember what Ivan's view is on this, we have debated before, but what I would like to see is border control being exercised. Yeah. It seems to me the entire Western liberal democratic world has given up on border mm. controls. If you turn up at someone's border and demand to walk across, or mm. in our case... Although that's across, changing, isn't it? Because we've seen the French are now saying that they're getting putting border guards back on the on the border in south of France, Ventimiglia, a place I know very well, because uh, it's the only place you can go for lunch in another country and come back in the same like, couple of hours. Um, but they're now putting border guards there because they say the people coming in from Italy are a problem, the Germans are saying the same thing, and there's no doubt, I don't think, that, that we're in a very different situation, Ivan, now than, than we've ever been, even in our, in our lifetimes, you know. Um, it used to be quite difficult to go from country to country in Europe, now it's very easy. Um, people are coming in by the hundreds of thousands into Italy, and they're all going to end up in Calais, and many of them will end up here. And so there does need to be a sort of controlled number, I think, doesn't there now? Look, I agree with you. There has to be a controlled number, but can I just take issue with two points that mm. Ben made? The mm. first point is, is that net migration is too high. Well, it's the government's policy. Yeah. It, it's the points-based yeah, system. They absolutely. brought that in. I, and 600, it is so well, responsible for 600,000. <laughs> the second point is that... Well, it's worse than 600. It's 1.2 million they're bringing in. Well... They're saying 800,000 are going out. And illegal people here already. Um... The other point is the economic burden. Simply mm. not true. I mean, migrants, students spend £30 billion in our economy. Migrants yeah, pay taxes. But, yeah. Migrants actually pay twice for NHS services. They pay an annual fee for any treatment they may or may not receive. And Who do they pay that to? The Home Office. And they also pay national insurance contributions. The actual fact... If no, they're working... They I well, disagree. Well, if, well, if they're working okay. uh, in a, a job in which they are charged national insurance, but if they're working in a car wash, I very much doubt they're paying national insurance. I'm talking about legal migrants. Well, they might be legal. Yeah. These guys might be here legally, but they might not be working in a legal job. And I there mean, is, that's like there saying is... we don't have drug dealers. You know, we do have drug dealers. They don't pay tax. The majority of people are working legally who come here, the 600,000 that came last year, coming on skilled worker visas... Oh, those but, people, yeah. yeah. yeah but, and they're but paying think... national insurance. They're paying for their treatment. Yeah, yeah. But I so please don't we say can't, no, that no, no, it's no, we economic can't. burden. Yeah, it but hang on. Yeah, but hang on. You're absolute... not allowed to argue amongst yourselves here. This is my show. <laughs> Here's the thing. The bottom line, though, is if they're bringing dependents, which some of them are, for example, on a student visa, which is madness to me, yes, they're bringing in money to the country, but if they're bringing dependents, whether they're children or whether they're aunties or uncles or whatever it is, they then become a slightly less beneficial uh, segment because they've also got then people who are going to be dependent upon services and, and government money being spent as well, right? Most students come as single people. They're young people. They're coming here to start. They don't have white... Why do we even have a law that allows them to bring dependents? Well, those are the rules. But those... they're ridiculous rules. But they need to change. Well, then change your government. Yeah. But the, the point... Well, change the rules, yeah. no? Yeah. Yes, but those are the rules brought in by the government. Mm. And, and really, it's, it's minute, the amount of money we're talking about. It really well, does not... Well, everybody says that this amount of money is minute. It does not there is an absolute economic burden. In fact, I'd go further, Ivan, and say there's economic disruption as a result of the rate of migration that we're getting. We are, we are replacing British-born citizens with cheap offshore labour. We're operating a third-world economic model and breaking our labour markets at the same time is creating exacerbating, rather, exacerbating a housing problem, exacerbating waiting lists on the NHS, exacerbating the burden on our infrastructure, water and drainage and everything else. We can't grow this population in this country at the rate at which it's growing through migration, yeah. unless also, the economic Also, I model... think it's important, Ivan, and I'm, I'm not sitting here blaming asylum seekers or, or even illegal migrants. I mean, if I was an illegal migrant, I'd come here as well, because it's an absolute uh, beautiful place to come and live, and it's a lot better than where you came from. And you know if you, put, you set your feet down on a beach somewhere near, you know, Deal, you'll be able to live here. So I don't blame them at all, but I do blame the system, and the system doesn't work. And I'd ask you this question. Why is the Home Office so useless? You must deal with the Home Office on a regular basis. I mean, why are they so... Absolutely useless at their jobs. 
the Home Office, or the government, let's say, are... Firstly, the civil servants and ministers are not working effectively together. Right. There's definitely a disconnect between right. the two. So ministers, what the ministers want is not being implemented by the civil service. Uh, not properly trained decision-makers. Quite often I see refusal letters with wrong names, wrong nationalities. Yeah. I mean, it's incompetent. <laughs> well, you only, have to try, you only have to get a letter from a hospital in this country yeah. to see that the place is not run very well. I mean, the Home Office is not unique uh, in the way that it's badly run. But why is it so badly run, is my question. Well, again, I say What's to you... What's wrong with them? Because the focus of this government is getting back into power. We need solutions. Yeah, but it's been going on for a long time. They've it got 300,000 employees, yeah. I think, in the Home Office. Yeah. And they can't, they can't all be trapped, can they? No, and this is where Suella needs to be slightly yeah. called out. She is a member of a cabinet, finds collective responsibility, but she's uh, rightly speaking up about these issues, and I think she should resign as Home well, Secretary. Well, I remember when she came in and everybody said, this is going to be great because Suella Braverman was a lawyer in the Home Office. She knows how it works. She understands the internecine structure of it. She understands the corridors of which you have to uh, manoeuvre to get things done. Meanwhile, nothing's been done. So Absolutely. she's no different from anybody else. Economic migrants, take that. Why has nothing been done? Right. Because we're not removing people. Right. And the reason we're not removing people because they don't have identity documents. Right. We can't send them back to a country unless we know where they unless come from. Unless you know where they came from. So yeah. we need agreements. Can we not just send them back to France? We can't just send them back to France. No, you can't. We need an agreement with the EU, mm -hmm. agreement with their home countries. We need to get these agreements in place so we can remove people. Mm. Otherwise, what do you do? Do you just push them back like the Australians did? Well, you um, do, yeah. Well, that's, that's one way do, of doing it. That is border control. We what? have to exercise border control. And the Italians have to do it. The Western Balkan countries have to do it. Greece has to do yeah. it. It's critical. And the EU is squarely responsible here. The EU has absolutely hollowed out these yes. nation states. They're not prepared to stand up for themselves. Mm. They're being overrun. Lampedusa, no other way to describe it, completely overrun it is. with illegal migrants. And they're going to make their way into Italy through the Schengen zone. They can travel right across Europe. And guess what? They don't go to Poland. Why? Yeah. Because Poland has a zero-tolerance approach. Yeah, well, over in, uh, over in Tripoli, they think Schengen's a national destination. You know, <laughs> they think it's a town somewhere the in Holland. The you know, is listen. not to breach international treaties. Yeah, I That's know. That's a bad look for our country. It may be a bad We've look. We've got to have proper policies and decisions yes. to remove people. Yeah, well, I've, That's got, the responsibility I've got the answers the for all of this, right? But I haven't got time to tell you what they are. you have to come <laughs> back. We're going to talk now, though, uh, to Keith Prince, who is the City Hall Conservative Transport Spokesperson, uh, Conservative Party Assembly member as well here at the London Assembly. There's a mayoral race, uh, not quite kicked off yet, Keith, I suppose. Uh, but basically, um, we've got a lot to talk about because um, one of the members of the notorious Blade Runners um, appeared uh, exclusively on Talk TV uh, and basically said that the group will not stop destroying ULES enforcement cameras until Sadiq Khan stops the expansion uh, of the ULES um, area. So let's have a look. You're a small group of people and... Um... You know, it has uh, gradually grown um, and certainly since the expansion went live on the 29th of August, uh, the numbers have increased um, significantly. We're like a, a pack of lone wolves. Um, so we, we sometimes work together. Um, we work in isolation. We're not stopping until you stop. That's the bottom line. So that's the bottom line. Uh, those are the Blade Runners, as they are uh, self-named. Keith... Um... Susan Hall, who's running for mayor, says that uh, if she was elected, she would do away with the expanded ULED zone. Uh, are you in favour of her plan to do that if she is elected? Well, just make it very clear that I'm speaking on behalf of the Conservative Party, not mm. on behalf of the Transport Committee, Yeah, because my views are, are about the Conservatives. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've spoken to Susan about it. She's very clear about mm. it, and it's very doable. Mm. She can literally, on day one, once she's signed to take office... Say, say, turn off the cameras, or she can say, issue no more fines. Right. And uh, she is adamant that she's going right. to do that. And you think that's the right thing to do? No, oh, 100%. Right. Yeah, this is an awful tax. This is a tax on those least able to afford it. Mm. In, the, in the light of businesses, if you look at charities, if you look at individuals, the, it's the least able to afford it that are being taxed by this so-called socialist yeah. mayor. It's just ridiculous. It is ridiculous. So do you have some sympathy, then, with the Blade Runners? Well... Obviously, I'm not going to condone violence. Right. I'm not going to condone... But it's not really violence, is no, it? No, no, it's not. But it's, it's damage to public property, yeah. and I can't condone that, because, one, it's costing me and you money, because we've got to replace and repair them. Two, well, that's all right, because yeah. I, can, I can tell the mayor but, not to bother replacing them. But, but don't worry, don't no, spend any more money. But more importantly than that, it's taking up police time. 
this is the this is the big thing. Police are investigating all these crimes when they could be doing other stuff. But what I think the mayor does need to be aware of is that this is a very clear message being sent to the mayor. Now we had the initial expansion into the congestion zone. Mm. Then we had the expansion out to the A406205. Yeah. None of this happened then. Right. But clearly, you know, he has misjudged this terribly. Yeah. And this really does show how emotional people are about this mm. and how much damage this is doing to people. So that's what the mayor needs to pay attention to. Well, I think to. when you see as well the, the, the sort of the arbitrary nature of the where these cameras have been put, you know, I mean, Paul Scully I spoke to earlier this week who's been campaigning to have the one that's outside the Marsden Hospital removed because it's a cancer treatment centre. People are getting tickets uh, for, for, you know, for the expanded ULO zone because they're having to go to a hospital to get cancer treatment. Yes, they can apply uh, for an exemption once they've got the fine, but they're still getting them. Um, and so far, he hasn't had any, anybody at City Hall actually saying, that's fine, we'll get rid of that one. But they've got people who have got, like, living in cul-de-sacs where they walk out the door, there's a camera basically filming them driving out of their own drive onto their own street. You know, so people are very fed up with it. And I take the view about the, the Blade Runners, um, that they're, they're involved in what you might call um, non-violent protest in the same way that Just Stop Oil are. And there's loads of politicians who say, oh, Just Stop Oil are doing a good thing because they're trying to save the planet and they're, you know, they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart and their, their, their mission is a good one. Well, I might say the same about the, about the Blade Runners and say, look, they're not harming anybody. It might be costing us money, but we didn't ask Sadiq Khan to spend 250 million quid on all these cameras in the first place. Well, I'm not one of those politicians who would... Uh... I'm, well, well, I wouldn't expect you but, to be. But, uh, so, <laughs> but there know, are plenty, I'm there very are plenty of them. No, I, you know, I get it. I absolutely get it. And, you know, Sadiq Khan has brought this upon himself mm. because he, he tried to fudge, or, or his team tried to fudge the results of the uh, consultation. Yes. The consultation, even after him fudging it, even after them ruling out 5,000 votes, uh, he still had a consultation that said, no, we don't want it, and right. then he chose to go against yes, the will of the people. Exactly. And, you know, lucky we're not living in the 1600s because we know what happened to the mm. king who went against the well, will exactly of the Well, exactly right. And you make a very good point that when the first expansion was made, nobody minded because people kind of got it and people understood it. Um, and those who say, well, you shouldn't worry too much about it because it hardly affects any cars... Well, maybe, but it does affect poor, poorer people. It does affect business people. I, I hear from people all the time on this show who ring in and say, you know, I can't afford to buy a new van. I can't afford to be compliant with the rules because before this, there was no compliance required. Well, we, we'd need a two-hour show if I had to share with you the emails, the really heart-rendering emails that I get virtually every day yeah. on this issue. It is wrong. What he's doing is wrong. And when they say only a few cars, oh, it's only 10... Yeah. This is nearly a million vehicles. Yeah, right. right. Well, if nearly a million vehicles isn't much, mm. give me a million pounds, cos it's not much. Yes. Well, it's not much to Sadiq Khan. He spends a million pounds every second of the day. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.